Radio Mano Papachango. This week's episode is with a man named Tim Scully, who is one of the most fascinating people I've had the pleasure to hang out with in my brief time on the planet. Uh, Tim Scully is best known for having created some of the best LSD known to man uh, in the late 60s. He was producing LSD known as Orange Sunshine. He and his friend, the late Nick Sand, are featured in a movie called The Sunshine Makers, which I've seen. It's a fascinating film. If you're at all interested in psychedelics and their role in society and the personalities of some of the people who were the central movers and shakers uh, back in the day when... You know, it, we're coming around. It's interesting. We're at a moment now uh, that I honestly didn't think I'd live to see, which is we've gone around. It's like we're in an orbit and we've gone around the sun and we're coming right back to where we were in the late 60s when Tim Scully believed that production of LSD and the the distribution of LSD could change the world. Now you'll hear this guy was not motivated by money. Uh, he, if you have the honor to sit down with him, you see immediately that this is an incredibly intelligent person. Um, the kind of person whose intelligence sort of moves him to the fringe of what we would call, I don't know, conventional human society. I mean, I certainly got the sense that Tim is not somebody who uh, likes hanging out at parties and schmoozing. I, I think he says that himself. He's, um, you know, probably somewhere on the spectrum, as as are many extremely intelligent people. Um, and if I don't even really know what that means, I don't think anyone is clear on how intelligence plays into the, the autism spectrum or uh, but he's someone who is operating at um, at a level that probably makes it somewhat difficult and awkward to deal with normal people floundering around in our nonsense um, anyway my point is that he was motivated by the belief that psychedelics could make the world a better place and he put his life on the line in order to stand behind that belief. And he was sentenced to 20 years in prison because of his revolutionary activities. Uh, when he was in prison, he worked toward a PhD that he was granted while in prison. And I'm proud to say that... Uh, the institution that 
granted him that PhD is the same one I got my PhD from. The name has changed, but I think it was called the Humanistic Psychology Institute in the early 70s, and now it's Saybrook Graduate School, but it's the same institution. Um, So we share that. We are alma mater. We have the same alma mater. Um, Anyway, what I was saying about going around the sun and this whole cyclical nature of history and so forth is we're clearly in the second coming of this idea that psychedelics can have a healing role um, both to individuals and to society in general more broadly. Um, you know, uh, as most of you know, I've interviewed lots of people in the world of, from Rick Doblin at MAPS to um, the folks in Tijuana who are using uh, Ibogaine to, to help uh, people overcome addictions. Uh, to the folks in Costa Rica at Rhythmia who are using uh, ayahuasca to help people uh, overcoming trauma, dealing with uh, family issues, relationship issues, whatever. Ayahuasca in particular seems to have the capacity to focus on what it is that the person really needs to deal with. There seems to be some organic intelligence within the the brew, the plant medicine, that fulfills the role of a good therapist. The, the role of a therapist, I think, ideally, is not to heal you. It's to direct your attention and your healing energy toward those issues that need to be addressed in order for you to become whole. And ayahuasca seems to do that. Uh, People report that it pulls their focus to exactly the place that needs to be focused on, even if they didn't know that. And this seems to happen on both the psychological level and also on the physiological level. It'll pull the attention, you know, to the kidneys. And then later you find out that you had a kidney malfunction that you didn't know about, but the ayahuasca showed it to you. And so there's something very interesting uh, about psychedelics, ayahuasca in particular in that respect. But psychedelics in general uh, very clearly have a healing and restorative potential. Um, Now... I need to say that doesn't, they're not like the sorts of medicines that we're accustomed to in the West. I'm not saying, you know, take some psychedelics and you'll feel better in the morning. It's not an aspirin. It doesn't work that way. There's an engagement that has to happen. There's guidance that that has to happen. There's a sense of safety and uh, it has to be the right time and the right place and be with the right people and so on. So, you know, if you're feeling unstable or you're in a bad point in your life, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying psychedelics will make everything better. That's not how it works. It's more like going to the gym. You know, you don't want to go to the gym if you just broke your arm. You know, doing curls with a broken arm is not going to help. Uh, You want to be in pretty good condition. Then you go to the gym and you strengthen an already 
strong structure. If the structure is not strong, if the structure is wobbly for some reason, then maybe uh, ay uh, ayahuasca or other psychedelics aren't the best idea until you get yourself into a, a better situation. Anyway, that's I'm going off on a tangent already. So my point is that there's a recognition, I think a global recognition, that psychedelics do in fact have the potential to restore individuals and more broadly societies to a state of health and authenticity. And God damn it, do we need that right now. I mean, I haven't listened to this conversation with Tim uh, since we had it. Uh, and so my memory of it is from a couple of months ago when I went up to Mendocino and hung out with him for a morning. But I remember that there, that he had a sense of that he was wistful, full of whist. Uh, he was, that there was a feeling that when he was young, he might have been a little foolish and a little uh, not thinking things through properly and that maybe he'd, he'd been mistaken. Now, of course, that's to be expected from someone who was sentenced to 20 years in prison for decisions he made when he was young. It's a lot of time. He didn't serve 20 years, but that was his original sentence. Um, but he had a lot of time to sit in prison and think about what he'd done and think about mistakes he had made and, and so on and so forth. Um, but I have to say that I think he was right. Now, I don't know if he was right in the individual decisions he made, but I think he was certainly right that he lived in a society that was desperately in need of some very hard, clear, brutal introspection and that psychedelics are a way to do that. Maybe the quickest, most effective way. By the way, that's not your phone receiving messages. That's mine. I don't know how to turn that. I should turn that sound off. I'm sorry. I always forget. So those two messages that came in, don't look at your phone. Don't worry about it. That was my computer making that noise. Anyway, he was right. And he paid a price for it. And society sort of shut down all experimentation. It got so frightened by the implications of that experimentation that they shut down all the research. They sh made all these things, schedule one drugs, threw people in prison for life for selling mushrooms at a Grateful Dead show, just fucking went nuts with this Nazi-like reaction against psychedelics. And it's taken 40 or 50 years for the shit to calm down enough that the research is happening again, largely thanks to people like Rick Doblin. But I found in this, conversa in this conversation with Tim, I, I was reminded of this thing I hear so often, which is that, you know, when talking about uh, non-monogamy, which is something I obviously comes up a lot when I'm at dinner parties or whatever, and people will say, Oh, you know, we tried that in the 60s and it didn't work. The 60s were a failure. And so there's this sort of general social, socially accepted 
uh, myth that the 60s were this silly era of social experimentations, which all collapsed and it was all a disaster and none of it worked. And so we should just stop thinking that there's any fucking flower power or, or that love has any transformative political power or that, uh, you know, we should go back to the land or that free love is cool or the, any of that stuff. We should just turn our backs on it because the 60s were a terrible disaster. But here's the thing. That's bullshit. That's total fucking bullshit. The 60s were not a disaster. The 60s did not result in the sort of utopian, you know, Garden of Eden existence that people were sort of hoping it would. But it was not a disaster. The effects of the 60s are everywhere around us. From the music that we listen to, to the alternative energy sources that we're looking at, to people who, whose thinking is and has been affected by the, the sort of rippling effects out into the world of the LSD that people like Tim Scully produced in the 60s. People like Elon Musk could not exist without the alternative thinking of the 60s. Silicon Valley would not exist. Silicon Valley was the epicenter of the psychedelic movement in the 60s. That, there's no accident that that's the most creative place on the planet for the last 20 or 30 years. And you don't need, I mean, there's, there's lots of evidence for that. Look at, uh, you know, the, the founder of uh, Apple, what's his name? The famous guy who died with the black turtlenecks, I forget his name. Uh, you know, he said that the, the, the most important effect on his thinking was the LSD that he took in India. Jobs, Steve Jobs. Uh, yeah, so my point is, uh, the effects of psychedelics, just like the effects of the alternative approaches to energy, to housing, to family structure, to how we l love each other, to sexuality, the women's movement, the civil rights movement, the gay rights movement, the LGBTQ acceptance, all these things were either born or propelled by the alternative approach, uh, the alternative approaches to life that were opened up largely uh, by the psychedelic movement that people like Tim Scully fueled. So I think that uh, we all owe him a huge debt of gratitude. And I think that the effects of the risks that he took uh, the very selfless decisions that he made 50, 55 years ago will be felt for centuries, will be felt as long as homo sapiens are kicking. I really believe that. Strange. Um, and that's all I'm going to say. I think I'm not going to rant about how fucked up the world is this week. 
<laughs> Let's take a week off. Why not? Uh, I'm going to play you out with a song by one of my all-time favorite bands. I haven't played their music before because they're not obscure, and I try to keep the musical selections to something that you wouldn't have heard before, um, and uh, you know, to also to to bring some exposure to bands that that aren't very well known. Um, but this song is just so apropos that I, I want to play this. It's called um, Kid Charlemagne, and it's by Steely Dan. And uh, the song is sort of a, a profile of an acid cook like Tim Scully. I think it was basically about Owsley, um, but uh, I, I read years ago that, that they weren't specifically talking about Owsley, they were sort of talking about a, a general figure of the kind of person who, who was involved in, in that world. So this is Kid Charlemagne by Steely Dan, and I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Tim Scully. Thanks for listening, thanks for telling your friends, and thanks for being cool. Catch you later. Okay.
All right. I am here in a cozy cabin in Mendocino with Tim Scully. Thank mm -hmm. you for taking time for this. I really appreciate this. Mm -hmm. uh, I've Since I saw the film, well, what's the, the name of the film? Orange? The Sunshine Maker. The Sunshine Makers. There is a related film called Orange Sunshine, which is about the Brotherhood. Ah, uh, okay. Which helped with the distribution of uh, the LSD. Basically, the lab that the that the film centered on, that the Sunshine Makers centered on, was the last LSD lab I worked in, uh -huh. where we made what was came to be called Orange Sunshine. And that was in Denver? That was in Windsor, California. Oh, in Windsor. You drove okay. past there on the way here. Oh, right, right. And um, part of what was going on there is that my, my de second Denver lab had been busted right. the year before. And um, I had raw material and some chemicals, but no lab equipment and no money. And Nick Sand had a lot of money and raw material and really wanted to learn how to make acid. Mm. So, but he had been, he made it, the money that he was sitting on at the time from selling STP to the Hells Angels. And what is STP? Um, it's one of the mescaline analogs that uh, Sasha Shulgin popularized. Ah, okay. Um, he called it DOM. Yeah. But um, it's a psychedelic. It's a very long-acting psychedelic. At the time that Nick started making it, it wasn't yet illegal, which was one of its attractions. Right, right. Um, it also was effective in relatively small doses, which meant that you could make a lot of it you know, a lot of doses relatively easily. Right. Not not as easily as with LSD, but still. Is know. the chemistry of making LSD particularly complicated? Well, it depends very much on whether you care about whether it's pure and whether you care about the yield that you get. Are the impurities uh, neurotoxic? Well, it's an interesting question. Um, you know, there haven't... I, I'm not aware of any really carefully controlled studies that have been done. Huh. But I can tell you that on an uncontrolled basis, well, to begin with, uh, Bear Owsley, uh, when he first took LSD, the first LSD he took was made by a fellow named Douglas George, who thought, sort of like you did, well, the dose is so small, who cares about impurities? Let's not bother to purify it, because any impurities will be present in such small amounts that right. nobody cares. So he made and gave away a bunch of very impure acid that he made. And Bear got a hold of some and took it for his first trip. And he thought, well, that was kind of interesting. But then a friend of his, who happened to also be his attorney, gave him a dose of pure Sandoz LSD. And the difference was like day and night. Really? So from his experience... Not just in intensity, but in characteristic. In the, in the quality of the experience, right. yes. And so he, that's what led him to decide that he needed to make LSD so he'd be sure of what he was taking. Mm. Interesting. So he made a very sincere effort to learn how to make very pure LSD, and he did. Mm. Um, so I think purity makes... It, I, I, it's my personal belief that purity makes a big difference, but it's also my belief from a couple of experiments we ran that people's expectations and beliefs have a huge impact also. Sure. So, I mean, at, uh, 
I learned the process from Bear at the Point Richmond lab, and at that lab we took a few grams of pure LSD, mixed it, divided it into five different piles, and diluted it the same way with the same diluents that we always used for tableting, um, except we used different color food coloring in right. each of the five batches. Right. So there were five different colors of acid that we put out on the street that were otherwise absolutely identical. And people made up different stories about the different <laughs> colors. They said the red stuff is laid back right. and the green stuff is jittery <laughs> and has speed in it. Right, right. And none of that was true. So, yeah. you know, in addition to you know, Leary and Alpert's notion of set and setting, there's beliefs you have about the particular drug, you know, right. variations on the placebo and nocebo effect. And, um, you know, who's to say? Uh, it's hard to separate all those things out. There's a study on placebo that showed that, I think I might be getting these facts wrong, but uh, it, it was that uh, red pills make people um, their uppers <laughs> and that blue pills are downers, except in Italy. And they couldn't figure, because they'd done this transcultural, cross-cultural research, and they found in Italy the blue pills were, ex, you know, excitants for people, and they couldn't figure out why, and then it occurred to them that the football team is mm -hmm. the blues. <laughs> <laughs> so there's an association with energy and aggression around blue in Italy, I guess. Yeah, strange stuff. Um, so you, you, I wanted, before we, we get into the, the whole LSD thing, I was looking at your uh, Wikipedia page, and I saw that you built a particle accelerator when you were in high school. That's true. Um, <laughs> <laughs> How does that come to, come to pass? And that was in, what, the 60s, 50s? When yeah, were you in high school? Early 60s. Early yeah. 60s, okay. So, um, very early 60s. Yeah. Um, so, it, I did a intermediate school science fair project involving a little computer and got an honorable mention and then uh, my brother was a couple of years older than I and was headed for MIT mm. and uh, my family didn't have a lot of money and so I thought well I'd like to get a scholarship and a good science fair project might be the way for me to pay my way through college. Right. And I had the honorable mention I won for the little computer got me a tour of the Lawrence Radiation Lab in Berkeley. Mm. And um, I had a chance to see the Bevatron, which is a really big particle accelerator. Yeah. Um, and that got me thinking. And I did some reading. And I found out that there was an isotope of mercury, which if it captures one neutron, will become radioactive and decay into gold. And I thought that would be a very cool science fair project <laughs> to make gold out of mercury. So you're an alchemist, essentially. Yeah, so that's, I mean, you couldn't make a visible quantity of gold that way. You, don't, you only make maybe at best a few million atoms. But, uh -huh. but it would be detectable by the characteristic energy of the gamma rays given off by the isotope as it decayed. Uh -huh. So... I set out to want to uh, build a particle accelerator that could produce neutrons, a neutron flux, 
so I could irradiate a, merc a target, a bottle of mercury as a target. And you're doing this in your in your parents' basement, or where where were you? Well, uh, I st the first thing I started to do is build the power supply for it, which is with a big industrial strength Tesla coil, a thousand watt Tesla coil, because um, I wanted to have a lot of beam current. Right. And then, that's, that's to focus the, the 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 protons, I guess. Was it protons that you're accelerating? Actually, I ended up accelerating deuterons. Deuterons. Huh. They're the nuclei of deuterium atoms, mm. uh, which you get deuterium from heavy water. Mm. Oh, uh, right. The yeah. early nuclear explosions, right? Were from well, no, heavy water occurs naturally. It's a, it's a small percentage of oh, really? uh, naturally occurring water, and you can separate it out. Uh -huh. uh, that's... It's a, you know, it's like separating U-235 from U-238. You can uh -huh. separate heavy water from white water. Right. Um, there was a whole thing during World War II about a heavy water separation plant. But I got a summer job to work at the radiation lab for the same professor who had taken me on the tour um, a couple of years earlier. Uh, he'd gotten a National Science Foundation grant to hire some young high school students as an experimental program. Mm. And so he um, taught me how to do what's called scanning, which is to, he, he was, he, Professor Powell was the fellow who hired me, and he ran a 30-inch propane bubble chamber doing physics experiments at the Bevatron. And the product of those runs was a lot of film, photographs taken of the tracks of particles in the bubble chamber. Oh, okay. That, I was going to ask you what a bubble chamber was. That's to it, it's a successor to movement. a cloud chamber. So, right. Uh, uh, actually, Dr. Powell used to use cloud chambers back in the 20s, and then when the technology came along, he moved on to bubble chambers, which right. were better. Um, and so he, they, he uh, had uh, mostly uh, undergraduate students working for him, scanning these pictures. He'd take many, many thousands of pictures looking for particular events. Right. And I got a summer job learning how to scan for the events they were looking for in a particular experiment. But he knew that I had this wacky science fair project I wanted to do, and so he let me spend two weeks in the student machine shop, and two weeks in the electronics shop, and two weeks in the glass shop. Mm. So I could pick up some of the skills that I needed for finishing the accelerator. Well, that's great education yeah. to be able to move in those different areas. Yeah, it was really cool. He was yeah. a very nice guy. Yeah. And uh, and the Rad Lab was a great place to hang out. Oh, that. Um, and you were one of the younger people there, probably. Yeah, but they didn't discriminate. They were yeah. nice. You know, yeah. I didn't get along with the other kids in high school very well, but I the, at the Rad Lab it was. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was before being a nerd was cool. <laughs> yeah. Right. Do you ever do you ever look at culture now and say, "Damn, I was just born too early. I'd be a superstar these days." <laughs> no. Yeah. That's. Yeah. Well, I think. I mean, you you, you were involved. You, you mentioned that you designed a computer in high school as well. I think the whole computer age is part of what brought being a nerd into being cool. Right. Although it's funny, because it seems like American culture in general is ever more anti-intellectual. It does seem that way. And yeah. yet, around technology, there's this little oasis of where, you know, intelligence is considered cool, I think. Kind of, sort of, as long as you don't uh, think about things like climate change. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I, that, one of my favorite quotes, which people who listen to this have heard a million times, is uh, this football coach 
being asked what the secret is to being a great coach. And he said, uh, you have to be smart enough to understand the game, but not smart enough to realize how little it all matters. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of, you can apply that to anything, you know. Um, so you, and so they get the chronology right. You graduate from high school. No, actually, I dropped out at the end of my junior year. You dropped, well, you dropped it into Berkeley, though, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you failed upward or whatever it would be. No, I was kind of encouraged to leave. I mean, it, the, the school had let me have an empty classroom, an extra classroom to build the accelerator in. Oh, oh that's where the accelerator was. And so, and it was, they were fine with it while I was doing all the, you know, <laughs> spending a year or so putting things together. But right. when I started tuning it up and I actually got some beam current, then the parents of the kids who were studying the surrounding classrooms started calling the principal and saying, you know, this is probably not an appropriate activity for the school. Because they thought you were going to blow the place up or something? Or irradiate their kids yeah. or whatever. I don't know. But, yeah. Um, I mean, I had adequate shielding, but still. Um, so I was I was encouraged to move on to the university. And what is the shield? Did you have like lead around it or something? Is that yeah, I had I had some lead bricks. Well, I, I had paraffin blocks immediately around the accelerator to thermalize the neutrons. Mm. I, mean, I was I was accelerating deuterons to bombard a target, which was a zirconium sponge saturated with um, deuterium. So that Where I could, does one buy a zirconium sponge? Well, I scrounged a scrap at the Rad Lab, but, you know, but I mean, I'm sure now you could buy the stuff online easily enough. Okay. It's, it's, it, I mean, you know, Not down at true value. No, no, but yeah. you know, there, but it's, you know, if I if I hadn't been able to scrounge a piece there, I would have gone to the uh, glassblower I know and asked him because glassblowers tend to be material scientists. Ah, they know where to buy anything because. They have to deal with the different coefficients of expansion and so on, of different right. materials. So, if somebody wants to, you know, have something made out of an exotic material mounted in glass, you know, a, a, a port or a terminal going through a glass vacuum chamber, they may have to use several different metals with different coefficients of expansion to make things compatible mm. with, or several kinds of glass. Mm to make things compatible with the outside glass that makes up the bulk of the vacuum chamber. You mentioned that your brother was going to MIT. So he was also technologically uh, adept, I take it. Yes, uh, he was much uh, straighter than I was. Uh, he he was stayed, much what? Straighter. Straighter, oh, okay, right. <laughs> Were you already, I no. mean, at that age, were you already considered or did you consider yourself to be sort of an alternative thinker or were you just a smart kid at that point? I was just a deviantly smart kid at the time. But deviantly, okay. <laughs> and he wasn't as deviant um, by, by personality. Well, my father had encouraged both of us to be a little bit odd and that he hmm. his script for us was that we should avoid dating while we were in high school or college until we got our PhDs. Avoid joining There's any organization. <laughs> avoid joining any orga organization that might jeopardize your security clearance. Oh. So you could get a good job in government supported research. Is that what he did? Was That's, he, at, he stayed at MIT for something like 14 years. Your brother. Right. Yeah. And, and, and what did your father do? Um, he started studying chemical engineering and then dropped out after he got divorced and married my fa my mother, 
which met with total disapproval from his Irish Catholic family, who had been supporting him. And what was your mother's background? Um, English Protestant. Uh, oh, okay. But having a divorce anyway was not okay. Yeah, and, and, uh, I see. The divorce was the issue. Th well, that was at least a part of it. Yeah. I mean, I think that the English part of it was also, yeah. uh, you know, the political part of it was relevant, and the religious part of it, it was all relevant. But yeah. So he ended up working at, he was a very bright guy, but he ended up working at relatively menial jobs. Mm. Um, he worked as an auto mechanic, he had a gas station for a while, he worked at an oil refinery. Finally, he got a job as a uh, firefighter mm. and eventually was assistant fire and security chief at Camp Parks. Interesting. Which is a, yeah. a mothballed military base down in uh, Livermore. Huh, okay, uh, so he wasn't a government researcher, but he saw. Yeah, he, he 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 was frustrated. He felt he was ended up having to work with people yeah. that didn't weren't on the same mental wavelength with him, and he right. was like frustrated. He spent a lot of time reading, but he never really got to do the things he wanted to do intellectually. Huh. And so he was trying to encourage us to follow what he thought would be a, the path toward success. Right. And my brother actually did pretty much all of that. So he, you mentioned he stayed at MIT. He taught there? Well, he, yeah, he, he stayed there for a long time, went through undergraduate school, graduate school, and he could have made it through in a lot less than 14 years, but he got really interested in doing research mm. and kept uh, refining his dissertation project. I mean, eventually, his dissertation became a a famous publication in the, in his field. Which was what field? He was studying the aerodynamics of helicopter rotor blades. Ah, and he went ended up going to work for the government uh, designing helicopters. The government doesn't actually build helicopters, but they have designers who work on helicopter designs to produce specifications that are put out to bid. And the same designers also evaluate the designs that industry comes up with. Mm. So my brother's job was basically to do that, mostly for helicopters. Also, uh, he was involved with the tilt rotor, the Osprey, mm. the V-22. Right. Um, but uh, he just recently retired. I met a guy recently who worked in helicopters, um, some sort of helicopter mechanic, technician, whatever. And when he retired from that, he got into vibrators <laughs> because he had all this specialized equipment for measuring vibrations. Yeah, there's uh, a lot of vibration in helicopters, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, I think that's a big issue with helicopters. Uh, did your father live to see your success and your brother's? No, he died of cancer in 1966, uh, so unfortunately he didn't. Uh, but that's a shame. He, 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 he lived just long enough to see me um, drop out of college to travel with the Grateful Dead. <laughs> <laughs> Which probably didn't look like success at that time. No, he, didn't, he couldn't understand that at all. And, yeah. and uh, I, was, uh, you know, I visited him in the hospital wearing uh, kind of outrageous clothes and my hair getting long. And, yeah. Um, I was working for the Grateful Dead as an extended job interview for the real job I wanted, which was working as Bear's apprentice in his lab. Yeah. So you were uh, designing electronic equipment for the dead, is that right? Well, kind of, sort of, yeah, for Bear, for, for the dead. I mean, 
Like, was he, it sound he, equipment or yeah. lighting? Or, yeah, 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 it was sound equipment. Yeah. Bear had some background back before he was, um, back when he was being called Owsley. Yeah, uh, was he a big dude? Why, why Bear? He's very hairy. A hairy guy. <laughs> Her suit. Yeah, yeah. A, lot of, a lot of hair on his chest. Yeah. Um, so he was known as Owsley when he first started making LSD, but then he became way too famous as Owsley because the uh, Perry Letterman, the, a, a musician that he sold one of his first grams to, for some unexplained reason, told everybody who had made the acid that he was distributing, and that made Bear yeah. instantly famous. Yeah. And he, I, mean, I think he had very mixed feelings about that. He enjoyed the fame, but on the other hand, he knew it was really dangerous. Right. <laughs> so. Right. <laughs> and LSD was made illegal '66, was it? Well, it's complicated because actually people were prosecuted for making and selling LSD as early as 64. Oh. So there wasn't an explicit law saying LSD is illegal, but it was an experimental drug. And there were a number of laws saying how experimental drugs should be labeled, how they should be manufactured, how oh. they should be distributed, okay. controlling their distribution in interstate commerce. Most of those were all misdemeanors. Um, but, you know, th there were, there wasn't a specific law against taking it, um, mm. but you could get prosecuted for making it, distributing it, selling right. it, and so on. And how, was Sandoz still sending it out uh, into the mid-60s, or did that stop earlier? Um, I'd have to look it up for you, but you know, around 65 or 6, they stopped manufacturing right. and it had become way too controversial. Right. And, um, you know, there, was, there wasn't any point from their point of view to getting involved in more controversy. They were a very buttoned down, they still are a very buttoned down yeah. drug company. Yeah. Um, Hoffman was working for them, right? Is that yes. how they ended up with it? Yeah. Yes, Someone Robert. gave me a, an ampule from an old Sandoz uh, ampule. Uh, that I briefly made into a necklace and wore, and then I thought, man, eh, maybe that's not a good idea going through airports. With, Probably not. You know. <laughs> yeah. it, it, would either of you like a cup of tea? Um, no, I'm okay. A glass of water. Anyway, if you need something, let me know. I'm okay. Fine. Thank you. Thanks. Um, so, you're. I, I'm. I'm interested in the transition from you being this very intellectually motivated high school student working in physics and mathematics and uh, materials and how did how were you radicalized well uh, let me let me try to give you the cliff notes version um, yeah. the summer I worked at the rad lab uh, I was able to sleep in my grandparents attic because my maternal grandparents lived in Berkeley, and so I could ride a bicycle over the Rad Lab and work. And this is 63, something like that? Um, well, we don't, we don't need to I can get exactly. you the exact dates no, if you no, care. Just, I'm just yeah. situating it more or less with the cultural changes I think happening. That, I think that was, uh, the, the, the summer I worked at the Rad Lab, I think, is like 60 or 61. Oh, okay, you know, earlier. So, so it's pre-Beatles. Yeah. Okay. So um, then when I dropped out of high school and entered the university, I went back to live in my grandparents' attic. Um, and I got, a, I got rehired by the Rad Lab so I could work part-time 
to help make money for expenses. But I used to walk up to a grocery store on Claremont Avenue, just a couple blocks away, and I was walking past a company called Atomic Laboratories, which looked really interesting. So one day I walked in, and it turned out they were making educational stuff having to do with physics. And um, I told them about the particle accelerator I'd built, and the, the guy who ran the company said, oh, I really like to hire young people to design stuff for me. Um, how would you like to work on doing some electronics consulting for me? And so I started doing consulting work for Atomic Labs, finishing up some unfinished instruments for them, and then later designing instruments. So that sort of got me into doing more electronic design. Mm. You know, I started out, I mean, I was pretty much an autodidact when it comes to electronics. I didn't take any courses, but mm. read a lot of books and dinked around a lot. And so, um, and I rapidly learned that you can do a lot by, if you've got parts to play with, you can pretty easily include something together that yeah. works. And you had already built a, a computer in high school, so you were... A very dumb computer, yeah. Yeah, well, but in those days, you know, this is all, I mean, you were sort of in the right place in the right time for a lot of different things were converging at that, in Berkeley in those years, I imagine. It's true. So. I worked for Atomic Labs, eventually got a partner, um, a slightly older student who worked with me, and we formed a partnership called Ateca Development, named for my grandfather's attic. Ateca, <laughs> nice. And, uh, nice. Yeah, we thought it sounded a little I, Greek. I, I, it was, I thought it was Mexican, <laughs> Ateca or something, yeah. But, um, yeah. and we, we got a contract, we got a $10,000 contract to build a thing called a portable modular radiation lab. And that was a lot of money in those yeah, days. Yeah. So my share of that was enough to put a down payment on buying a house. And you're how old? Um, 18, 19, <laughs> you're I don't know. You're buying a house at 18? You know. Wow. So you know, I bought a, bought a house um, sort of in the twilight zone between the residential and industrial area of Berkeley, mm. down close to San Pablo Avenue. So it was a, you know, an inexpensive house, 14 grand. Um, I put a down payment down and then rented rooms out to fellow students mm. to make the mortgage payments, which right. I think were 90 some odd bucks a month. You know, money wasn't worth as much then. Right. You know, the Rad Lab was paying me a buck 30 an hour. Right. Which is why Atomic Labs was a good deal, because yeah. they paid more. Yeah. Um, but, so one of my friends from kindergarten who had been studying at San Jose State University, studying Oriental philosophy, came up to do a semester at Berkeley, rented a room from me, and started telling me about Oriental philosophy, turned me on to the Tao Te Ching, hmm. turned me on to some of Aldous Huxley's writing, right. things like uh, Doors of Perception, Heaven and Hell, and eventually turned me on to pot. Um, after I got over my initial horror and thought that, oh, well, that's, that's a one-way trip to Skid Row, Right. Um, you believe the the reefer madness propaganda? Oh yeah, that's, yeah. That, that's where I started out. But but Don, my friend, convinced me that no, no, this is okay. And I smoked some pot and decided, yeah, that was okay. And he told me about lectures he'd attended at San Jose State, where um, Charles Savage and uh, Richard Alpert and some of the other early LSD researchers had spoken about LSD. And both of us got interested in the idea of LSD. And 
I didn't have a strong religious background. I mean, the, the Irish Catholic and English Protestant things pretty much canceled out. Right. So, uh, yeah. you know, and I was I was grew up with a fair amount of skepticism of organized religion. Yeah. But I liked the idea of being able to have a mystical experience as a result of taking a psychedelic. Right. And so I set out to find some LSD and I found some in San Francisco. Actually it turned out to be some of the first capsules that Owsley sold. Really? And uh, this so you were familiar with you had read about LSD as a as a potentially transformative experience before you'd ever taken a psychedelic. Sure. Well, I read about mescaline and psilocybin and right. so on. You know, I mean, I had a lot of expectations from right. Huxley's writing and. Right. Had you uh, read Alan Watts at that point, or was he? I, I think maybe a little, around? and uh, but I was I was particularly influenced by um, Huxley's Island. I mean, that, yeah, that uh, utopian book. fantasy was. Yeah. Very attractive. It's time for me to read that again. I think yeah. it's probably been ten years. Yeah. So. Um, my son Don and I took acid. So you found you found this acid, and is what two hundred micrograms? Or I think they're two seventy. Two seventy, which and we we split one tap. We 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 took a cap, to dissolved it in water, and each drank half of it. Oh, okay. So we took about one fifty, one forty each, right. and that was enough. You know, it worked. Yeah, that's um, plenty. We weren't disappointed. Um, we we both. Where did you go? Were you out in the we, nature we, somewhere? We, we, we took it in my living room, uh -huh. at Hopkins Street, the house that I'd bought. Had a fireplace so we could build a fire. Uh, and, uh, we took it in the evening. We stayed up all night, uh -huh. um, and in the morning we went out and walked in nature, and that was really cool. We yeah. discovered how nice that was. Yeah, um, you know, the world was like it completely new. And it was his first time as, as yeah, well. both of us first time. Right. And the thought that I came back, you know, I mean, I experienced an intense feeling of oneness with everyone and everything. And I thought, if everyone could experience that, a lot of the world's problems would go away. Mm. People wouldn't be as mean with each other. They wouldn't be as destructive of the environment. Um, they wouldn't be as greedy. You know, I had really high expectations for what sharing that experience might do. So I looked at Don and I said, well, we really ought to make a lot of this and give it away. Um, this could save the world. So that was my first acid trip. And it was like getting struck by lightning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you, unlike a lot of people, you followed through on that initial vision, and that that yeah. sort of informs your life for, I don't know, would you say five the years? Next, yeah, next five years, and rippled out into the rest <laughs> of it. Right, brings us here today. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I remember my first experience with hallucinogens very clearly and it changed my perceptions as well in a very lasting way halloween night 1980 mm -hmm. was mine with mushrooms april 15th 1965 for there me you <laughs> <go>. <laughs> there you go i just mailed my tax return before taking oh, it. <laughs> oh, right. yeah, tax day yeah yeah um so at that point i, I had a question i was thinking about do you think, you know, as you describe the feeling of oneness, and do you think that the the experience of, first of all, do you think the experience of LSD is 
qualitatively different than psilocybin, for example? Or do you think it's okay to sort of group these things together? I think it's okay to group them together. I think they're similar. Yeah. and That, that is, masculine, psilocybin, and LSD are similar. Right. What about DMT, ayahuasca? That's, that's, that, those are significantly different. And ibogaine, again. Th those are different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you can certainly have peak experiences from them, but they're very different. Yeah. Um, so... You know, and it's, and things like STP, very different. Yeah. Um, did you know Sasha Shulgin? Did you know him from Berkeley or? No, no, we we never met. Bear knew him, uh, um, but uh, but he kept that pretty quiet for right. a number of years. Right. Yeah. He, he didn't want to cause trouble for Sasha. Well done. Yeah. yeah. Sasha <laughs> was sort of uh, towing the line, or you know, on the tightrope between. What he was doing up on the ranch, and and because uh, he, he was licensed and had you know, I, I met him uh, Anne and Sasha probably ten years ago, fifteen years ago. Actually, you and I know a lot of the same people. Um, two days ago, I was with Jim Fadiman in Santa Cruz. Uh, he, do you know who I'm talking about? Uh -huh. um, yeah, he sends his regards. And Stanley Krippner, uh -huh. do you oh, know yeah. him? Yeah. yeah, he was on my dissertation committee. Oh, that this is <laughs> that's right. I, I was, had breakfast with Stanley <laughs> yesterday, and he asked me to send his love. Stanley was on my dissertation committee. I, I have a PhD from uh, Saybrook. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you were the precursor to Saybrook. The, HPI, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And... Were you in prison when you got your PhD? We was. That is a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, they they were very good to work with me in that situation. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I didn't want to, to jump ahead too far, but yeah, people that we know in common, the Grateful Dead. Of course, Stanley was involved with them for years. Um, Stanley's a wonderful, wonderful guy. I've been to probably thirty countries with him. Mm -hmm. When I was in grad school, he used to take me around to different conferences, and uh, he actually got me invited to Albert Hoffman's 100th birthday, but I couldn't go. That's great regret. Did you know Albert Hoffman? You uh, I met him once. Uh, uh, Bear and I um, had a little private chat with him in a motel room when he was speaking at a conference in Santa Rosa. Mm. Yeah. It was kind of interesting. Yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> Did he know what you were up to? Did you talk? Oh, oh yeah. This was after we'd stopped doing it. Oh, okay. So, so you uh, could speak freely about yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so where were we? We were. You had just had your first experience with your friend Don, and you decided we're going to turn on to... the world. Right, but it turned out not to be easy. I mean, finding the raw material. Um, was the first big stumbling block, and you know, I, it turned out that getting lysergic acid was already essentially impossible, at least for someone without a lot of better skills than I had. So it's not something. The precursor isn't something that you can manufacture. You need to to get the precursor already made. Yeah, it, I mean, technically, it's. It's technically possible to make lysergic acid, but it's not even remotely practical. It's like a dancing bear, only more so. Mm. All uh, right. You know, is it, it an it, industrial chemist chemical, or where where is it made? It's 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 biosynthesized. 
biosynthesized. So uh, ergot alkaloids come oh. from the claviceps paspale fungus. Right. Um, either grown to the fruiting bodies on wheat or rye. Um, right. Or you know, commercially, it's generally grown in submerged culture. Yeah. And so, you know, that's... And, and the drug, drug companies do that. And, and they that's do what it. Hoffman was working with when he accidentally discovered it, right? He was working with ergot? Well, uh, by the time he was working with ergot alkaloids, uh, Sandoz was already m making some drugs based on ergot alkaloids. Ah, okay. And um, I think the general idea was that the ergot alkaloids that are naturally produced, if you take the, extract the alkaloids from the fungus, uh, you've got a mixture of different things. You have to separate them out. And generally what the drug companies do, I believe, is they break it down, break, they hydrolyze them back down to lysergic acid and then build them up into a per, the particular drugs they want to use. Mm. Um, because, you know, they want to have a, the, the fungus produces a mixture of different ergot alkaloids and for medically, it's much better to have a one pure specific alkaloid in a carefully controlled dose. Is I, I'm not in by any sense a chemist, but is an alkaloid molecularly similar to neurotransmitters? Um, well, that's a... I, I know the whole neurotransmission system mm -hmm. of the brain was essentially discovered or, or explored because of the conundrum of how such a tiny amount of LSD could have such profound effects. Well, that's how uh, the researchers get into investigating serotonin, particularly. Right, uh, um, right. But, um, yeah, I don't think... Um, you know, I, let me back up and let me hastily say that I'm not a really... I'm not a real chemist. <laughs> neither yeah. was Owsley, neither was Bear. Right. I mean, most people right. in the underground are not real chemists. We were what, are, what a real chemist would call a cook. Right. And a cook is somebody who can take a recipe that a real chemist has figured out with a good grounding in broad grounding in theoretical chemistry mm. and, a, and someone who could answer um, hard questions like that easily. Right. Um, and, um, you know, a cook is not somebody who's necessarily, like I have a, a, a fairly deep but very narrow slice mm. of chemical knowledge yeah, relating to how to manufacture a few drugs. I'm the same. I, I know how to grow marijuana and nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only plant. I've spent 20 years growing marijuana, but I, to give me tulips, I wouldn't know what to do. I wouldn't have any idea. Um, so, so, how did you get the precursor? You, you met someone else who had contacts. So, you know, I stumbled around for most of 19, the rest of 1965, um, and I, I won't go through all the grim details, but I tried various methods to try to get a hold of some raw material. So you were persistent. I was trying to do it. And you continued to, to have experiences with LSD? Yeah, Don and I kept on taking acid. Right. Um, you know, maybe once every week or two, oh, okay. like that. So you're pretty, pretty uh, into it. Yeah. And, and was it starting to radicalize you politically or in other ways? Or did you just feel the sort of social need to bring this experience to other people? Because now 65, Vietnam's heating up. 
music's changing, the culture's starting to shift. I was already starting out being skeptical about the Vietnam War mm. and skeptical of rampant consumerism. Mm. Um, I was already concerned about the environment. I'd, I'd been reading a lot of, <coughs> pardon me, I'd been reading a lot of science fiction and science fiction tends to extrapolate social trends and already by 65 there's lots of science fiction yeah. talking about the likely bad consequences of trends that were appearing socially right. Right. Um, overpopulation you name it right. you know, there's a long list of problems so I was aware of those things but I wasn't you know out on the street marching um, at least partly being timid from my father's encouragement and partly because I tend to be timid anyway. Hmm. I mean, years later, I, I um, read uh, Neurotribes. You read that book? Steve Sil Silverman. Yeah. yeah, actually, I'm going to have him on the podcast. We've corresponded. We well, looked at that yesterday. I, I, I recognized myself in yeah. his book very much. I mean, yeah. I think I'm on the Asperger's spectrum right, somewhat. Right. And um, I'm not comfortable dealing with large groups of people. I'm much, sure. you know, like one on one or one or two people I can deal with really well. But right. mob scenes are not, definitely not to my taste. Yeah. And yeah. demonstrations are something that I would yeah. have avoided anyway. Just sure. You know, rock and roll dances were a big stretch outside my comfort zone. <laughs> you know, I was doing that to convince Bear that I was trustworthy, but uh, right. not, not what I would choose to do. Yeah. Um, so. What finally happened was that Bear ended up coming and knocking on my door. Oh, he came to you? Well, the reason was because a young woman um, named Diana Nason was renting a room in the basement of my house. And she had gone to a party at Ken Kesey's house. Down near Stanford. Right. Right. Where Ken Kesey and the pranksters were getting high together. Right. And Bear happened to be at that party. And she and Diana met, he and Diana met, and they ended up getting to know each other better. They had to uh, do that in a closet because there were no doors on any of the bedrooms in <laughs> Kesey's house, he didn't, or the bathrooms. He didn't believe in privacy. Oh, really? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> So anyway, I think Diana did tell Bear that you know, her landlord was this guy who did electronics but who really wanted to make LSD. Uh -huh. um, but I think he came by mostly because he wanted to chat up Diana again. Right. You know, uh, but there right. I was answering the door, so right. uh, he ended up turning Don and me on to DMT, which he happened to have with him. Wow. Uh, smokable. Smokable, yeah, right. Um, so the, the free base is smokable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Nick had figured that out um, only a year or two before. Nick Sands. Nick Sands. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so at that point, Bear had recrystallized some rather impure DMT that he got from Nick, because Nick at that point was kind of a bathtub chemist who didn't believe in purity. Mm. Um, but so Bear had these beautiful water white crystals of DMT that he um, and he had a little glass pipe that he had made, and he put it on. What kind of cr crystals? What? Water white, you know. 
pure, you know, like really pure DMT. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, like looking like crystals Walter, of quartz. Wait, Walter White's from Breaking Bad, right? Is that is that what the reference is? No, Water White. Oh, Water White. Okay. Sorry. Who's the? Have you seen Breaking Bad? Uh, no, I've just read the synopsis. It, it, yeah. I, I don't watch a lot of television. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I imagine it's very good, and it's about a very good chemist who ends up having a you know, major impact. And I think his name's Walter White. That's I, think, I, I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Good. I, I'm saving things like that up for when I get too old to be able to do useful work. You and then know, I can watch television. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same. I've got there's so many books and movies. You know, I figure when I have a motorcycle accident, and I'm recovering or something, then I'll I'll catch up. There you go. <laughs> yeah, so that hasn't happened yet. Um, anyway, I'm sorry I interrupted you. So you had these beautiful uh, water white uh, crystals. And he uh, came up with a pouch of fine English mint leaves. And we ground up fine. He put them in a little glass pipe and put the crystals of DMT on the mint leaves. Mm. And then um, put the pipe in my mouth, put a match over it, and away I went. Um, so that was, that was interesting. That was like a 10, 15 minute experience? Very, very intense, but yeah. short, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, I had a friend who was a chemist who had um, gotten involved in making speed, which I didn't think very highly of, but um, Bear had heard about that, and he encouraged me to turn my friend on to DMT and said he ought to make that instead. Yeah. Don and I thought that was a great idea. <laughs> yeah. Is DMT hard to, to Comparatively make? easy to make. That's what I've heard. And is it, come, it comes from a plant? No, you can make it from, well, you, you can you start from indole, which is a commercially available chemical. Yeah. Um, so it, you don't, it doesn't, but it does, a, DMT does occur naturally in some plants. Yeah. Um, and People say that it even toads. occurs to some extent in the brain. I don't know. Yeah, well, in every cell of the body, from what I've read. Yeah. Or no, no, I'm thinking of GHB. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that, that's different. But in the brain, yeah, at the at death, I think DMT is released in the brain, or so I've read. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I'm slightly. I haven't looked into it deeply, so I'm slightly skeptical. But maybe mm. it's an interesting idea, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but. I mean, DMT isn't active orally unless you take another drug to allow it to become an MAO inhibitor. Right, exactly. Right. Which is not necessarily safe unless you're careful about other things that you're putting right. into your body. Right. No um, cheese, nothing <laughs> fermented. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is why people who are doing ayahuasca ceremonies have to be very conscious of their diet. Right. And also antidepressants are quite dangerous, I believe. Right. Yeah. So uh, drugs aren't something to fiddle with yeah. carelessly. You yeah. can get into a lot of trouble. So you you turned on your the speed cook to DMT and did and he, he did he did make some DMT instead, which is good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, I got to know Bear. We talked electronics, and that was in uh, late 1965, December. And Bear is older than you. Yeah, several years older. Yeah. Um, so at that point, you know, he'd already been, he'd, he'd met the Grateful Dead at Ken Kesey's place, but he hadn't heard them play. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he went to a, the Muir Beach Acid Test a few weeks later and heard the dead play while he was high on acid, and he was just blown away. He was convinced that they were going to be a really important part of 
changing the consciousness hmm. of everyone. And an acid test, for people who don't know what, what you mean by that, how would you describe an acid test? Well, I think in the end an acid test happened when the pranksters, who were Ken Kesey's associates, either with or without Ken Kesey, and the Grateful Dead got together and took acid and played music and did their other stuff. And acid was also available for people who were there to hear the music. Generally speaking, by the time I got involved in acid tests, the way they worked is that the venue would be set up, everybody would leave, everybody, so it would be an empty room. Everybody would come in, paying a dollar to get in, and then there, would, there was the Kool-Aid, and um, right. you know, anybody who chose to drink the Kool-Aid right. uh, got high. The electric Kool-Aid. Yeah. yeah. So there's a book by Tom, Tom Wolf. Who is it? Wolf. Tom Wolf, right. The electric Kool-Aid acid test. Yeah, he was talking about the Watts acid test in particular, but yeah. 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 That was the first real acid test that I was at. At Watts? Yeah. Uh, was Tom Wolfe wandering around in his white suit? I don't remember seeing him there, but then, you know, I'm not real good at you know, picking people out of crowds. Especially in a crowd, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, so, you were, so you went to the Muir, Muir Beach test? I didn't go to the Muir Beach acid test, but oh, Bear did. Bear and, he was, okay. and he fell in love with the Grateful Dead. Right. He believed that their music was going to be really important. And at that point, they were just sort of a private neighborhood band that played at Kesey's parties and other events in the Bay Area, right? I think they just renamed themselves from the Warlocks, but yeah, they were not well known. They hadn't really taken off yet. No, yeah. not, not, not at all. You know, funny Kesey reference in the Merry Pranksters and all that. I, I came here today in this van and uh, I've been working on it the last few months with a friend and I was thinking what to put on the front of the van, you know? <laughs> And I've, I live in Spain most of the time, and I thought of Ken Kesey's, the, what was it called, the Magic Bus. Mm -hmm. Further. And it, and it said further on the front, right. So I put on the front of my van, further in Spanish, which is a phrase I really like, which is masaya. <laughs> and I posted that up on Instagram, and immediately someone wrote to me and said, it's going to look like Allah Sam in the rearview mirror. And then I started, then other people were like, really? You're going to drive around America with Allah on the front of your van? I started thinking like, yeah, I'm going to get a brick through the window of the van. But, you know, and I'm not going to be there to explain, no, it's Spanish. So I removed it. So, yeah, but there for a few weeks, there was a reference, a very obscure Ken Kesey reference on my van. Anyway, so uh, we were retracing the whole the, the development. It was 1965, and Owsley was convinced the dead were going to be uh, a major cultural force. So, um, a, a, not very much later, a few weeks later, maybe, let's see, end of January, 66. Uh, well, let me back up. Uh, uh, partway through January 66, Bear uh, invited Don and me to the Trips Festival, which took place in Longshoreman's Hall. Mm. The Grateful Dead were going to play there. And so we all took acid and went to the Trips Festival. Again, a mob scene, not my favorite, I'm not my comfort zone exactly, but it was interesting. Um, and he. Um, then afterwards, Bear talked about the electronics 
equipment that the dead was using. They were using Fender amps, and the quality of the audio wasn't really great. You know, the PA was lousy, um, a lot of distortion in the instrument amps. And um, he, 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 we talked a little about, you know, how that could be improved. But, you know, not in any serious way yet. But not long after that, at the end of January, he invited Don and me to um, what was called the Sound City Acid Test. Now, it wasn't really an acid test in the sense that the public wasn't there. It was the pranksters and the dead in a recording studio called Sound City doing mm. their thing to try to cut a record, mm. which unfortunately the masters got lost somewhere in the midst of time, so we wow. don't have that recording, I don't think. But um, we all took mescaline for that trip, the first and only time I've taken mescaline. Um, and it wasn't that different from acid, except that I got a little bit of a headache. Uh -huh. uh, is, is mescaline extracted from peyote? Well, it could be. In this case, it was synthetic mescaline. Oh, okay. But right. Right, it, it, it it's, the, it's the psychoactive. It is uh, the active ingredient, yeah. Right. So, um, and it was at that acid test that Phil Lesh said to Bear, how would you like to become our manager? And Bear said, no, I don't really want to do that. And then Phil said, well, why don't you become our sound man? And Bear said, oh, I could do that. Mm. Because he had been, he had previously worked at radio and television stations back in his earlier life, between after he got out of the Air Force and before he started cooking chemicals, uh -huh. um, he spent some time doing working as a uh, sound engineer. And he wasn't really an electronic designer, but he was knowledgeable about uh, radio and television sound systems. You know, had a, right. a commercial radio telephone license and so on. Uh, he could operate a radio station. He's, he was a very smart guy. It sounds like he was an extremely smart guy. Yeah. Um, and you must have felt an affinity, I'm thinking of your father's frustration at mm -hmm. never finding people that he could really communicate with. Right. And I imagine that's been difficult for you as well. Well, I've learned to not be as snobbish as my father was, but yes. <laughs> yeah. But when you find yeah. someone that you yeah. can just be free and open with and... and feel recognized, that must be a really special moment for you. Yeah, I, I, I like hanging out with bright people. Yeah, yes. yeah, I can see that. Oh, so yeah. so that's how you got into the, you sort of came in with, with Bear into the, the sound. So because so Bear turned to me and Don and said, okay, well, you guys want to come along, Tim, you could help me by designing the electronics to my specs for mm. this sound system. And what was Don doing? Well, Don, by that point, We'd done a number of things. He and I had uh, started a little ad company called the Hung Up Advertising Company, H-U-A-C. <laughs> uh, we were, we were uh, making radio ads um, on spec. Huh. You know, we'd hear a really lousy ad on the radio, and we'd make a good one, and uh -huh. then go play it for the people who had this lousy ad and right. sell them an ad. Huh. Uh, so I'd, I'd turned the bedroom of my house in Hopkins Street into a little recording studio, put egg flats on the walls and ceiling. That's funny. That I would never have predicted in the midst of all this, you'd be like, let's start an advertising company. Well, it was a way to, we were trying to make some money to <laughs> yeah. pay the bills. But, right, um, right. And, and because I had the recording equipment, I got involved in doing live recording of a one 
uh, musical group, um, a duo named uh, Corky and Buck, who were playing at the local uh, bistro down the street from my house, mm. and they wanted a demo tape. So, right. so I had a tiny, tiny bit of sound experience. Right. But you know, I figured I'll do whatever Bear wants because if that he'll eventually decide to trust me, then I can go work in the lab with I him. I see. You're you're still trying to work your way in, and yeah. Because he had the room. I he had raw material. He knew where to get it. He knew how to use it. He had everything that I wanted. Right. And do you know uh, how how was he? Where did those contacts come from? How did he establish that? Well, um, after. Bear got turned on to LSD. Um, well, let me back up. Before Bear got turned on to LSD, one of his uh, friends turned him on to methadrine. And so there was a period in his life, a few months long, when he thought that methadrine was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And he was. What is methadrine? Is it an amphetamine? It's yeah. an amphetamine, okay. methamphetamine. Right, yeah. Oh, it's um, methamphetamine. Yeah, it's methamphetamine. Yeah. It's bad stuff. Right. You don't, don't, it, not recommended. Right. But, um, but Bear uh, fell in love with it for a while and was shooting speed. And um, then he met Melissa, who was a chemistry student at UC Berkeley, chatted her up, and turned her on to speed. And they made some speed in the UC chemistry library, the lab, uh, unbeknownst to the University, which he then sold, um, which financed him running a house and setting up a little lab in a building that came to be popularly called the Green Methadrine Factory mm. on Virginia Street in Berkeley. So that's what he was doing before he got turned on to LSD. Mm. So when he got turned on to LSD and decided to make it, he already had a little bit of a lab. Right. And he, um, at that point, very, let's see, I guess that was late 64. It was still possible to buy lysergic acid. He bought some, uh. made a little bit of LSD, but couldn't work out the purification part of the process um, at that lab. He and Melissa were out, and the place was busted because a cop came to the door. A friend of Bear's was staying there, and the cop tried to buy some speed from this guy, and the guy was happy to sell him some. Yeah. Well, fortunately, there wasn't any other speed there, and there wasn't any finished speed in the lab except whatever this guy had in his pocket that he sold to the cop. So, although they did bust Bear and Melissa, confiscated the lab equipment, analyzed everything, and came up dry. There wasn't any finished speed. Mm. There was some partly made speed, but there wasn't any finished speed. Right. So, they ha eventually had to give him back his glassware and chemicals. They hadn't searched the trunk of his car; they would have gotten him. <laughs> but um, anyway, meanwhile, while the legal wheels were grinding slowly, um, Barrett hired the either current or former mayor of Berkeley as his lawyer, and which helped him to get off. Yeah, good lawyer helps. Yeah, um, Art Harris. But um, Bear went to L.A. for a while thought that maybe being out of Berkeley was a good idea. Stayed with some friends, got permission to set up a lab in their basement, and worked <laughs> out how to do the purification of LSD, figured right. out how to do chromatography. Uh -huh. Preparative column chromatography is the key to purifying LSD. Mm. 
making it pure enough so you can then crystallize it to finish purifying it. Mm. And he worked out the... He knew that he was supposed to do that, but there are a lot of lab technique tricks to doing it. And, and that's where he, he was self-taught as well? Yeah. He, he went to the university library. He was not a chemist. M Melissa had some chemistry background, right. but Bear just went to the university library and read everything that had been published about ergot alkaloids. Wow. And he rem remembered everything he read. Mm. Um, not photographic memory exactly, but he could quote pages out of books that he'd read. That's amazing. So when he got interested in anything, he would read up about it and then form a very strong opinion. Mm. Um, so he could give you a lecture at the drop of a hat about anything yeah. you know, that he was at all interested in. Was he a charismatic guy? Um, charismatic or incredibly irritating, depending on how he rubbed you. <laughs> yeah. What was what was annoying about him? Was he was he arrogant or overbearing? Or well, yeah, there was some overbearing. He wanted everybody to. Once he formed an opinion about how to make a cup of tea or what what brand of toothpaste to use or whatever, mm. he thought everybody else should do the same thing, and he was ready to mm. lecture you at great length to convince you that that was what you ought to do. So he considered himself a leader that yeah. people should follow. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And do you think, was that part of his motivation with uh, being so active in the manufacturing of LSD, and was he also, was his motivation similar to yours in the sense that he thought that this was going to change the world in a positive sense? Well, you know, the stories that he's told for his motives changed a lot over the years. Oh. Um, I mean, at f when I first met him, he did believe in the idea of trying to change the world in a positive way. Mm. But after he got busted and spent some time in federal prison, he decided not to tell that story anymore. <laughs> He thought that wasn't a good idea, hmm. and he, he would, you know, tell people that oh, he was just trying to increase the level of bossness in the universe, or <laughs> the level of what? Bossness. Bossness. Yeah, ja coolness? jazz term. You know, like boss. Yeah. It's like cool. coolness. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Which is sort of the same story, just a different way of telling it, maybe. Yeah, a much more subtle way of telling it. Yeah. 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 Do you think that that uh, the experience people had? We're talking earlier about. Uh, you know, hanging out with intelligent people, and and of course there are many different types of intelligence, and so, uh, you know, I don't mean to to be reductionist in that sense, but do you think that the experience of like we're talking about placebo, do you think that um, the experience that someone has with psychedelics is substantially different based on? what kind of intelligence they bring to the experience. In other words, I know LSD, for example, has been given to spiders. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, they, they've they given spiders, have you read that? Uh -huh, yeah, different, pa different, different web patterns. Yeah, yeah, and with LSD, they make these amazingly elaborate mm -hmm. webs that hold together perfectly, and <laughs> uh, but are uncharacteristic <laughs> for that species, whereas with caffeine, they make these sort of, you know, webs that are all falling apart. and. Um, or alcohol, I don't remember what the other chemicals are. But do you think, in other words, what, I, what I'm trying to get at is, do you think that LSD uh, and other, the other psychedelics we mentioned, do you think that they engage the pre-existing intelligence, or do you think they have the effect of increasing intelligence? 
Well, I, I kind of buy into Huxley's reducing valve metaphor. I think it's more that you know the, the, the mental model that I've that I've, that I've um, had, which is probably out of date, but I'm still carrying around from the mid '60s, is that um, in ordinary consciousness we're filtering out most of the inf information that comes into our senses. Right. And that uh, the idea being that uh, psychedelics open up those filters and allow a lot, maybe not raw information, but less filtered information to come in. I, that's my metaphor as well. I, I feel it, it broadens the fil filtration system. And also, not only of what's coming in in terms of sensation, but in terms of what's generated by the mind in response to those sensations, like ideas you might not normally have. Right. You know, which is Jim getting back to Jim Fadiman and the whole microdosing revolution that's happening now in Silicon Valley. There are a lot of people who think that 10 micrograms or so a day, every three days, helps them with their creative process. Do you have any insight into that? Are you are you familiar with that whole? Well, I, 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 I've read about it, heard about it. Um, I've been a devout coward since getting out of prison, so I haven't right. tried any of those things. Right. And I haven't wanted to be around places where people were doing it. I mean, I've tried to not be present where there are illegal substances. Uh, is that because you're in legal jeopardy? Oh, well, five or, felony convictions. Five? Uh, all from one trial, but five, uh, five felony convictions. Right. That's enough. You know, three strikes and you're, world out, uh, you're out kind of a world. It's not a good idea to right. be in trouble again. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just six strikes. I don't know what they'll do. They'll <laughs> string you up by your heels or something. Well, I, I have no drugs on me, so right. you're safe with me. Uh, um, so yeah, okay. So you you're not involved in the even intellectually. You're not really following the microdose thing that much. No, what I, what I've been doing with respect to psychedelics for the last mm, almost twenty years is I've been gathering and organizing the history of underground LSD manufacturing. Mm. I mean, I got curious about what other people did, what happened yeah. to my friends, right? and um, that's led me to do a lot of research, a lot of interviews, and so on. And will this be included in the, the memoir you were talking about earlier? Well, it, it, it's, I mean, the, the, the history project, which is what I'm calling that larger research project mm -hmm. is now many gigabytes of data, uh, mostly massively hyperlinked PDF files. Mm. Um, and that's a much bigger project than a memoir. Oh, but on the other hand, okay. it's providing me a lot of the um, data so that, because right. my memory has lots of holes in it. Right. But I've been able to dig up enough contemporary documents to um, triangulate from other people's memories. Right. So I've you know interviewed a lot of my friends mm. repeatedly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> made a nuisance of myself. Good. Um, so um, so I can draw on information from that, but there's a lot more data there, um, and I'm not sure what will finally become of that. I mean, there's several other books that I think I could get from there. My, my, my tentative game plan has been to finish my own memoir, which has been going slowly, but going. And then I think I'd like to write a biography of Ron Stark. Because mm. he was one of the people that I crossed paths with who 
was very interesting. Tell, tell me, I don't know Ron Stark. Tell me something about him. Well, if you Google Ron Stark, you'll see all sorts of wild and crazy stuff. Um, I mean, I'll give you um, my current understanding after quite a few years of researching his life. Uh, Ron was a guy who was very bright, but who was a pathological liar from a very early age. He decided that he wanted to be a doctor and a biochemist, but he didn't want to do the work to become those things, so he just decided to call himself, you know, create credentials for himself. Um, and um, he got busted uh, faking his credentials for a job working for the Navy uh, at a relatively young age. He looked older than his age. Mm. Um, anyway, fast forwarding from that to um, after being uh, violating his probation and eventually uh, voluntarily committing himself to the Psychiatric Institute in New York, which is a high-class booby hatch as a better alternative than spending time in federal prison, um, he met people there who were interesting, got out, got turned on to LSD, and decided that he wanted to make acid or turn on the world. Um, and of course he chose a, he was a very good con artist by that time. He chose a, uh, a, a, a fairly creative path toward doing that and eventually hooked up with a, a fellow who did have chemistry background, set up uh, labs in Europe where he made significant amounts of LSD, as in kilos of LSD, many millions of doses. Yeah. Um, and he had, back in his youth, when he first got out of the booby hatch, or the funny farm as he called it, um, he uh, visited Millbrook and got to know some people there. That's where he met the chemist who eventually became his right. LSD chemist. And Millbrook was a house in upstate New York where Timothy Leary was uh, holding court. Millbrook was an estate in upstate New York that Billy and Tommy Hitchcock bought, the Hitchcock brothers. Um, William Mellon Hitchcock. They're both, right. um, you know, descended, uh, well, you know, very wealthy. Um, yeah. They um, formed something called the Hitchcock Cattle Corporation, which bought Millbrook, uh, large estate in upstate New York. And they had both been taking acid, had, had met Tim Leary, had been taking acid, and they rented the big house at Millbrook to Tim Leary and eventually Tim invited a lot of his friends there, and it was right. quite a scene for a number of years. Right. Um, so it, that was sort of a nexus where a lot of people who were interested in psychedelics went to Millbrook. It was right. one of the meccas of East Coast psychedelic world Yeah. in the early... Did you ever get out there? I got there later, after Tim Leary was gone, mm. um, because I became Billy Hitchcock's friend, and... You know, I visited him there a number of times, mm. but th th there weren't any pranksters there anymore. <laughs> Post-prankster. Uh, but, uh, so when Ron had this acid and he wanted to distribute it in the United States, he sent his chemist, Torg, back to Millbrook to see Billy, and Billy sent him to me because Billy knew that I'd been involved in making a lot of acid. Billy had been involved in the last lab I was working in. 
So this is 1970. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was I wasn't running a lab at the time. Right. Um, but this guy came knocking on my door and, and, and told me about his friend and eventually introduced Ron Stark. Ron showed up with. I remember it as being a kilo, and Nick remembers it as being a pound, but a bunch of LSD. Not very pure, but a lot of form? No, it was... They didn't believe in crystallizing it, so it was, but it was precipitated, so it was sort of a, a grungy, powdery sort of stuff. Hmm. It, it wasn't, as I say, it wasn't very pure, but... What would happen if you flew in a, in a small plane over Los Angeles and shook that powder into the air? Well, uh, a fair number of people would get high. Not not as many as you're imagining, probably. Right. You know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't uh, turn on the city. and It wouldn't be able to spread. Uh, you should talk to Jim Ketchum. He's a friend of mine who was working for the Army doing chemical warfare research uh-huh. on psychoactive drugs <laughs> so as an alternative know. to weapons that killed people. Right, right. You know, and huh. He had the vision that it would be better to incapacitate people than to kill them. And, um, can't disagree with that. Yeah. You know, um, well, eventually it got outlawed, but you know, yeah. the idea of chemical warfare, but um, still happening. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, they just with the nastier kind where well, they do kill also, people. I mean, you know, chemicals that explode a warhead are it's still chemical warfare. You know, yeah. it's sort of an academic distinction. Yeah. Um, it, it, speaking of of sort of uh, public imagination, you always hear this thing. Well, if you if you poured a bucket of liquid LSD into a reservoir, the whole city would get high. It's well, the, the, well, the, the math doesn't work out. The dilution isn't, you know, it, you need really a lot of LSD, way more than is practical. And right. the um, chemicals that are put in the water to kill bacteria uh, will also cause the de- LSD to start decomposing. So uh, it's probably not an effective way to try to turn a city on. Right. Um, do, you, do you know, did anyone, was because I know you've mentioned a couple people now who wanted to turn on the world. Mm-hmm. Were there people looking into that, what, what would we call that, psychoterrorism or something? What, you know, were there people looking into ways to get LSD into the water supply or into the food chain or to sort of indiscriminately spread it around? I, I don't know. I, I haven't heard of anyone who seriously tried to do that. Um, but I mean, our idea, my fantasy was, my ideal fantasy was to get somebody wealthy to finance making a couple hundred kilos of LSD so we could give it away. And one of the distribution fantasies that I had was to um, rent space, to have, you know those little postcards that are stuck into magazines? Yeah. Promotional postcards? Oh, just put a tab in there? To, to, well, to put a little dot of LSD on the postcard, not a, not a visible tablet, but just, you know, put some LSD on the postcard and be able to tell people after the magazine had been distributed. We were fantasizing like oh, Life magazine, right. maybe. <laughs> Which uh, would be appropriate since yeah. <laughs> Leary first read about psilocybin yeah. in Life magazine. Yeah. To, to, yeah. And, and then just tell people, okay, get the postcard from this week's issue and upper right tear corner. off this corner and, yeah. uh, and swallow it, and you're there. Well, that, you know, that, uh, that, that was the fantasy idea. that I had, because I, I wanted to get it out of the distribution channels where other drugs were right. to separate it from money, because I thought that money would be a really strong corrupting influence, and to mm. 
you know, and to make it available only to people who wanted to take it. I yeah. Mean, Don and I both really strongly felt that dosing people was a, effectively rape. Yeah, I agree. You know, um, Bear, on the other hand, continued to believe in dosing people mm. for many years. No, um, I, th I think that's ethically flawed. Yeah, very, <laughs> very flawed. Um, I don't, I don't want to take up your whole day. We've been going for over an hour already, and I feel like, I mean, I would love to just go month by month, you know, and, and hear this. Well, I, I am working on a memoir that'll tell you, all this story. Well, yeah. it, do you have a tentative title for it? Uh, the working title is "Trying to Save the World." Yeah, good. Uh, we didn't succeed, but we were trying. <laughs> So, but before we do, we do wrap up, I, if, if you have another 20 minutes or something, I'd, I'd love to get your insights into then and now. And, you know, I, I don't, of course, we never know to what extent our perceptions, particularly of, of large scale things, are influenced by our own biases. But I feel, I'm 55, so I sort of, I was a child in the 60s and, you know, I felt like there was this great party going on mm -hmm. that I wasn't quite old enough to join, but, and then as soon as I was old enough, it was disco and, <laughs> and it was over, the, you know, so I feel like I missed the big party and uh, that's probably a, like a central motivation in my life. Mm -hmm. And then um, I feel now like the party's starting up again. The party, when I say party also, I'm cognizant of the fact that the 60s were a really difficult time. There, it was a time where the great art was being produced, great social movements were happening, free love and style, you know, fashion and art, everything was, was alive, but simultaneously, it was a very yin-yang thing. Simultaneously, there was all this death and destruction and suffering going on in Vietnam and in the civil rights, you know, the riots in the streets and the Watts uprising and the convention in Chicago and Martin Luther King being shot and Robert Kennedy, all this horrible stuff happening and beautiful things happening. And I kind of feel like we went through this long, dull 80s, 90s, early 2000. Well, you know, 9-11 is a big deal for some people. To me, it doesn't seem that big a deal. Um, but now it feels like that yin-yang extremism is happening again. There's a lot of despair, a lot of economic despair, a lot of um, animosity in the culture. Of course, you know, the whole Trump thing just seems like some sort of joke being played on us by aliens. <laughs> but at the same time, it feels like possibly because of all those crises that there's much more fuel going into alternative ways of looking at things, alternative ways of thinking, alternative ways of arranging relationships or rejection of consumerism. Do you feel any of that or is this just me raving? Well, I think my, my wild guess is that there's been some of that happening for every generation from the 60s up till now. I mean, I, I know uh, some people have talked about the, 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 the arc of the Haight-Ashbury scene and how it was all over by 69 or 70. Right. But, you know, for people in other places where the psychedelic scene started later, their arc happened over another period of years. Yeah. And, you know, so it's, um, you know, I think that 
it's the length of blind men and the elephant. Right. Um, you know, it's, right. A, it's a very big elephant, and there's a lot of us who are only grabbing small parts of it. Um, I mean, I have to tell you that I became, by 1970, I decided that the probability that LSD was going to save the world was a lot lower than I thought it was. Was that because of the resistance you'd been getting in terms of law enforcement or that you had seen people that you thought it would change and it didn't change them? It's, I mean, it was in the context of me trying to make a risk-benefit decision and that I was getting hotter and hotter, so it was more and more likely I'd end up in prison. That's where the law enforcement came in. But on the benefit side, it was the question of, when I started out making acid, I was I thought it was extremely likely that turning a lot of people onto LST would produce very positive, lasting changes in people's behavior. And as a result, very positive social changes. Um, but by 1970, I had a lot of friends that I'd known who'd taken a lot of psychedelics and had a lot of, you know, intense peak experiences who still were real assholes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, right. I mean it, turned out, it turned out that having psychedelic experiences wasn't a cure for bad behavior right. at all. You know, you know that yeah. was, that, I mean, I had gotten my exercise by jumping to conclusions that, yeah. that this fantastic experience of oneness was something that would automatically translate into changed behavior in everyday life. Right. And it turned out that that's not at all true. I mean, it can be. Some people have changed their behavior. Um, to the extent that people's behavior changed, you know, it's like moving the needle a little bit rather than making big changes. Yeah. So, um, you know, on the whole, I'd say that people who've taken acid tend to be more likely to be liberal, more likely to be a little bit more ecologically conscious, a little bit less greedy, but still greedy, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> you, know, a, you know, a little less ecologically destructive, but still destructive. Yeah, um, still you know. embedded in a destructive system. Well, and, and you know, and, and, and there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of inertia in selfishness and yeah. everyday consciousness that comes back where we fall back into the behaviors that are not that great. And even pushing that a little further, I would say there's a danger of ego inflation. People think they're gurus, they think they're shaman, they think they're, they've seen the light and now they're going to tell everyone else. That, that's, that was extreme, that, that, that occupational hazard is a pit that almost all of us fell into to some extent. Mm. You know, that, and, and some more than others, but yeah, that was so. I mean, my memoir is at least to some extent a cautionary tale, saying right. that if you th are setting out to save the world and you think you have some thing that's going to do it, be cautious, mm. um, because it turns out that there are. I mean, I, I now get it clearly that there are lots of ways of getting to that experience of oneness. For example, lots of ways of having intense peak experiences, sometimes from conventional organized religions, sometimes even from political um, uh, rallies and, and, and um, experiences that people have. Mm -hmm. Sexuality. Sexuality. I mean, Absolutely. you name it. There's, I mean, yeah. there's a broad, broad, broad range of ways of getting there. Yeah. 
And the experience tends to have, carries with it, such an intense feeling of significance that it's easy for people to believe, aha, I found it, you know, I've got the answer, I've yeah. got to spread this, 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 and if people believe that they've got the answer, um, you know, whether it's some political or religious or whatever belief system or action plan, um, and they've had these really intense experiences that are so overwhelming, it's easy to say, well, the end justifies the means, and whatever I have to do to spread this particular belief system is fully justified because it's for the overall good of the world in the end. Yeah. And so, you know, we've got people blowing themselves up. We've got, you know, people doing all sorts of awful things, thinking that they're doing it from good motives. Right. You know, yeah. so... Um, is that what kept you going? Because one of the things that surprises me that I find hard to relate to is when I read about your life in those days you, you your lab was busted and you got off on a technicality and then you went and set up another lab and you know that one got busted but you were out of the country at the time and you, like you, there were so many near misses that you know you said you tend to be I don't know timid timid yes. by nature <laughs> I was reading that I was thinking are you kidding me I mean, I get a speeding ticket and I'm driving like a grandma for a year after that. I mean, I don't want to be anywhere near legal jeopardy. Yeah. Lawyers and, and, and you're talking about felonies. You're talking about big stuff. And you, you kept going. Well, you know, it, it, it's very thinking that you're doing something that might help save the world is very intoxicating. So that was the motivation because you, you know, weren't. You weren't doing it for money. You could have made a lot of money doing a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. yeah I didn't. I did. I wasn't worried about money. Yeah, no, I, I didn't have. You know, I didn't have a lot personally, but I was confident that I could earn any money I needed. Well, you'd already demonstrated that, yeah. like you know, out of high school, you could yeah. have made a lot of money. Yeah. So no, but no, it was really um, the, the 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 belief that this might save the world. Yeah. And. We were pretty convinced then that the world was going to the hell in a handbasket just as much as we could be convinced of that now. It's, yeah. It was as clear to us it then as it is now. It certainly needed saving. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and most of the time it does. You know. So yeah. it, I mean, people, you know, people at almost any point in history can convince themselves that that's the case. Um, and they're right. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> that's the thing. Uh, <laughs> they're all right. Did you ever talk to your brother about any of this while it was happening, or were you estranged? Well, I mean, he, his thing was making weapons, and mine was being against the war. Oh, was he actually making weapons? Well, he was working for the Department of the Army, uh, oh, making right, military... Right. You know, That's like, right. I forgot about that. I mean, you know, once he worked, started working professionally, he eventually you know, became an ST. He went through the top of the GS system and got to the point where he had to be appointed by Congress to this science and technology position that's... Mm. You know, higher horsepower, higher paid. Right. You know, so he was, in, you know, uh, testifying here and there. Right. About, you know, he he worked on the army after next uh, plans where they were planning thirty years in the future on what the military needed to be ready for and what wow. kind of weapons they needed to develop. So you know, he was very much off in that world. Right. And. You know, with the arrogance of youth, I was very much off in a different direction. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I, in hindsight, I respect what he's done. I mean, he's 
he, you know, he, he's, a, he's a good guy. Mm. Um, and he had good intentions. He was doing, trying to save the world his way. Right. You know? Right. It, <laughs> That's an interesting point. There's, you know, there's sort of a meeting, the, the motivation was the same. Yeah, we we ended up we we've ended up making peace with each other. Right? Oh, that's great. I mean, when I by the time I got busted and got sent to prison, he came to visit me and was supportive and was, really, you know, which was really nice considering that he had a very high security clearance. And, right, that was a risk for him. Know, it wasn't easy for him, but yeah. um, but he was clearly not involved in anything that I would do. So, right. Um, right. But. But my point is that um, there's a trap that it's easy to fall into of deciding that the end justifies the means once you start thinking you're setting out to save the world. And that's something that I highly recommend not doing. Yeah. Uh, save the world, but stay humble. Right. And, and, you know, be careful about getting intoxicated on that stuff. You know, maybe think globally and work act locally is better. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, but uh, yeah. I mean, I, it, I mean, I'm not trying to tell people what to do. I'm just saying be be cautious. You know, be be think more than once. I mean, part of it is it's really easy when you're young. You know, I mean, the, the whole idea of being sophomoric. You know, I mean, I really got what that means. Yeah. You know, because I was doing it to the max. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, um, what do they say? The the danger of being young is you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And as you get older, <laughs> you, you don't necessarily know so much more. You just know what you don't know. It starts to become clearer how little any of us really knows. Right. So, you know, um, first do no harm is a really good rule to start with. Yeah. Um, yeah. But... You know, hopefully somebody, you know, people will come up with ways of uh, directing things in a more positive direction. Um, hard to know. You know, it, there was a time back in the early years when I was working with computers when I fantasized way before the Internet existed, when I imagined that all the information in the world could be available on computer and people could fly through that field of information and find any fact they wanted. Right. And I thought that would solve a lot of social problems. Right. And I didn't even remotely occur to me that making all the information available also makes all the misinformation available. And, uh, yeah. and, and, and Gresham's law applies to information as much as it does to uh, money. What is Gresham's law? Bad money drives out good. Oh, really? Uh. And bad information tends to drive out good information. Uh. Huh. You know, and yeah. so... Yeah, you know, um, yeah, and when you've got somebody in power who wants to spread bad information, um, it's unfortunate. Yeah, what a cool guy! Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Tim Scully. Um, I'm I'm honored that uh, he had me up to his place, and uh, honestly, he wouldn't have found time for me if it hadn't been for you uh, listening to this podcast. So. Thanks again for opening those doors for me by by coming along for the trip. Really appreciate your support. I want to thank Basin and Range for that intro music. The song's called Bright Side of the Sun, and you can check them out at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast, you can go to Reddit, where there are a few thousand people chatting about the podcast. Uh, I drop in and answer questions, post photos, uh, whatever. Pretty cool community there. Another forum where you can meet fellow listeners to this podcast is at T8, no, sorry, T speaking 
www.boardhost.com. This has been set up by a listener to enable people to um, register and uh, their different states and countries so you can find people who live near you, get together, have a beer, smoke a bowl, eat some mushrooms, dance under the moonlight, however you celebrate these things. You'll find uh, like-minded spirits on that. It's Again, it's tspeaking.boardhost.com. Dot com. And uh, if you want to get some T-shirts, we have the Civilized to Death shirts, Sex at Dawn shirts, Tangentially Speaking shirts. They're all in my mom's garage. She will get them out to you in a jiffy. Julie, my mom, is one of the most efficient people you will ever meet. So you can find those on my website. That Chris Ryan, chrisryanphd.com, tangentiallyspeaking.com, whatever. You'll find them. Just look in the store there. If you want to buy some other T-shirts from the same manufacturer, that's Shore Design T shirts they are fantastic i know i say this is an ad free podcast uh and this could be construed as an ad but sure design t-shirts have been supporting this podcast since its inception bennett who was the dude there decided he was going to support the podcast he sent me a bunch of shirts uh at an extreme discount to uh, help us out since bennett died the people who took over sure design t-shirts.com uh have decided to continue giving us the same deal that bennett gave us So be sure to use the discount code CTD, as in civilized to death, when you order anything from them and you'll get 20%, 20% off your entire order. That's the discount code CTD, and that's at suredesigntshirts.com. Thank you to Carsey Blanton for the song you're about to hear. You can check her out at carseyblanton.com. She performed this little ditty, especially for us. Sounds like she was sitting in her garage. You can hear the birds chirping. The song is called Smoke Alarm, and it's a reminder to live now because you're going to die one day. This is for you guys, Bennett and Justin. Miss you. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Down. I don't want to give the end away, but we're going 
baby, what's a big deal? If you wanna be free, say what you wanna feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.